Chapter 11 of The Dog Crusoe and His Master. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Dog Crusoe and His Master by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 11 Evening Meditations and Morning Reflections. Buffalo, Badgers, Antelopes, and Accidents. An Old Bull and the Wolves mad tales henry floored etc etc there is nothing that prepares one so well for the enjoyment of rest both mental and physical as a long protracted period of excitement and anxiety followed up by bodily fatigue excitement alone banishes rest but united with severe physical exertion it prepares for it at least courteous reader this is our experience and certainly this was the experience of our three hunters as they lay on their backs beneath the branches of a willow bush and gazed serenely up at the twinkling stars two days after their escape from the indian village they spoke little they were too tired for that also they were too comfortable their respective suppers of fresh antelope steak shot that day had just been disposed of their feet were directed towards the small fire on which the said steaks had been cooked and which still threw a warm ruddy glow over the encampment their blankets were wrapped comfortably round them and tucked in only as hunters and mothers know how to tuck them in their respective pipes delivered forth at stated intervals three richly yellow puffs of smoke as if a three-gun battery were playing upon the sky from that particular spot of earth the horses were picketed and hobbled in a rich grassy bottom close by, from which the quiet munch of their equine jaws sounded pleasantly, for it told of healthy appetites, and promised speed on the morrow. The fear of being overtaken during the night was now past, and the faithful Crusoe, by virtue of sight, hearing, and smell, guaranteed them against sudden attack during the hours of slumber a perfume of wild flowers mingled with the loved odors of the weed and the tinkle of a tiny rivulet fell sweetly on their ears in short the pale faces were supremely happy and disposed to be thankful for their recent deliverance and the present comforts i wonder what the stars are said dick languidly taking the pipe out of his mouth bits of fire suggested joe i think they are worlds muttered henry and have peoples in them i hear men say that a long silence followed during which no doubt the star-gazers were working out various theories in their own mind wonder said dick again how far off they may be a mile or two maybe said joe henry was about to laugh sarcastically at this but on further consideration he thought it would be more comfortable not to so he lay still in another minute he said yo blunt you is very ignorant don't you know dat de books say de stars be hundreds thousands oh millions of mile away to here and dat day is more bigger than dis world joe snored lightly and his pipe fell out of his mouth at this point so the conversation dropped presently dick asked in a low tone i say henry are ye sleep we oui, replied henry faintly don't speak or you will waken me ah crusoe you're not asleep are ye pup 
no need to ask that question the instantaneous wag of that speaking tail and the glance of that wakeful eye as the dog lifted his head and lay his chin on dick's arm showed that he had been listening to every word that was spoken we cannot say whether he understood it but beyond all doubt he heard it crusoe never presumed to think of going to sleep until his master was as sound as a top then he ventured to indulge in that light species of slumber which is familiarly known as sleeping with one eye open but comparatively as well as figuratively speaking crusoe slept usually with one eye and a half open and the other half was never very tightly shut gradually dick's pipe fell out of his mouth an event which the dog with an exercise of instinct almost if not quite amounting to reason regarded as a signal for him to go off the campfire went slowly out the stars twinkled down at their reflections in the brook and a deep breathing of wearied men was the only sound that rose in harmony with the purling stream before the sun rose next morning and while many of the brighter stars were still struggling for existence with the approaching day joe was up and buckling on the saddlebags while he shouted to his unwilling companions to rise if it depended on you he said the ponies wouldn't be long afore they got our scalps jump you dogs and lend a hand will you a snore from dick and a deep sigh from henry was the answer to this pathetic appeal it so happened however that henry's pipe in falling from his lips had emptied the ashes just under his nose so that the sigh referred to drew a quantity thereof into his throat and almost choked him nothing could have been a more effective awakener he was up in a moment coughing vociferously most men have a tendency to vent ill-humor on some one and they generally do it on one whom they deem to be worse than themselves henry therefore instead of growling at joe for rousing him scolded dick for not rising ha malvay's dog bad chin will you dare to look at me crusoe did with amiable placidity as though to say howl away yo boy i won't budge till dick does with a mighty effort giant sleep was thrown off at last and the hunters were once more on their journey cantering lightly over the soft turf ho let's have a run cried dick unable to repress his feelings aroused by the exhilarating morning air have a care boy cried joe as they stretched out at full gallop keep off the ridge it's riddled with badger ha i thought so at that moment dick's horse put its foot into a badger hole and turned completely over sending its rider through the air in a curve that an east indian acrobat would have envied for a few seconds dick lay flat on his back then he jumped up and laughed while his comrades hurried up anxiously to his assistance no bones broke inquired joe dick gave a hysterical gasp i i think not let's have a look no nothing to speak of be good luck ye should never go slap through a badger country like that boy always keepin de bottoms where de grass is short now then up you go that's it dick remounted though not with quite so elastic a spring as usual and they pushed forward at a more reasonable pace accidents of this kind are common occurrence in the prairies some horses however are so well trained that they look sharp out for these holes 
which are generally found to be most numerous on the high and dry grounds but in spite of all the caution both of man and horse many ugly falls take place and sometimes bones are broken they had not gone far after this accident when an antelope leaped from a clump of willows and made for a belt of woodland that lay along the margin of a stream not half a mile off hooray cried dick forgetting his recent fall come along crusoe and away they went again full tilt for the horse had not been injured by its somersault the antelope which dick was thus wildly pursuing was of the same species as the one he had shot some time before namely the prong-horned antelope these graceful creatures have long slender limbs delicately formed heads and large beautiful eyes the horns are black and rather short they have no branches like the antlers of the red deer but have a single projection on each horn near the head and the extreme points of the horns curve suddenly inwards forming the hook or prong from which the name of the animal is derived their color is dark yellowish brown they are so fleet that not one horse in a hundred can overtake them and their sight and sense of smell are so acute that it would be next to impossible to kill them were it not for the inordinate curiosity which we have before referred to the indians manage to attract these simple little creatures by merely lying down on their backs and kicking their heels in the air or by waving any white object on the point of an arrow while the hunter keeps concealed by lying flat in the grass by these means a herd of antelopes may be induced to wheel around and round an object in timid but intense surprise gradually approaching until they come near enough to enable the hunter to make sure of his mark thus the animals which of all others ought to be the most difficult to slay are in consequence of their insatiable curiosity more easily shot than any other deer of the plains may we not gently suggest to the reader for his or her consideration that there are human antelopes so to speak whose case bears a striking resemblance to the pronghorn of the north american prairie dick's horse was no match for the antelope neither was crusoe so they pulled up shortly and returned to their companions to be laughed at it's no manner o use to wind your horse lad after sich a game they're not much worth and if i mistake not we'll be among buffalo soon there's fresh tracks everywhere and the herds are now scattered you see when they keep together in the bands of thousands you don't so often fall in with em but when they scatters about in twos and threes and sixes you may shoot them every day as much as you please several groups of buffalo had already been seen on the horizon but as a red deer had been shot in a belt of woodland the day before they did not pursue them the red deer is very much larger than the prong-horned antelope and is highly esteemed both for its flesh and its skin which latter becomes almost like chamois leather when dressed notwithstanding this supply of food the hunters could not resist the temptation to chase to a herd of about nine buffaloes that suddenly came into view as they overtopped an undulation in the plain it's no use cried dick i must go at em joe himself caught fire from the spirit of his young friend so calling to henry to come on and let the pack horse remain to feed he dashed away in pursuit the buffalo gave one stare of surprise and then fled as fast as possible 
At first, it seemed as if a huge, unwieldy carcass could not run very fast, but in a few minutes, they managed to get up a pace that put the horses to their mettle. Indeed, at first, it seemed as if the hunters did not gain an inch, but by degrees, they closed with them, for buffaloes are not long-winded. On nearing the herd, the three men diverged from each other and selected their animals. Henry, being short-sighted, naturally singled out the largest, and the largest also naturally, was a tough old bull. Joe brought down a fat young cow at the first shot, and Dick was equally fortunate, but he well nigh shot Crusoe, who, just as he was about to fire, rushed in unexpectedly and sprang at the animal's throat, for which piece of recklessness he was ordered back to watch the pack horse. Meanwhile, Henry, by dint of yelling, throwing his arms wildly about, and digging his heels into the side of his long-legged horse, succeeded in coming close up with the bull, which, once or twice, turned his clumsy body half round and glared furiously at his pursuer with its small black eyes. Suddenly, it stuck out its tail, stopped short, and turned full round. Henry stopped short also. Now the sticking out of a buffalo's tail has peculiar significance, which is well to point out. It serves, in a sense, the same purpose to the hunter that the compass does to the mariner. It points out where to go and what to do. When galloping away in ordinary flight, the buffalo carries his tail like ordinary cattle, which indicates that you may push on. When wounded, he lashes it from side to side or carries it over his back, up in the air. This indicates, look out, haul off a bit but when he carries it stiff and horizontal with a slight curve in the middle of it, it says plainly, keep back or kill me as quick as you can, for that is what Indians call the mad lazy and is a sign that mischief is brewing. Henry's bull displayed the mad tail just before turning, but he didn't observe it and accordingly waited for the bull to move and show his shoulder for a favorable shot. But instead of doing this, he put his head down and, foaming with rage, went at him full tilt. The big horse never stirred. It seemed to be petrified. Henry had just time to fire at the monster's neck, and the next moment was sprawling on his back, with the horse rolling over four or five yards beyond him. It was a most effective tableau, Henry rubbing his shins and grinning with pain, the horse gazing in a fright as he rose trembling from the plain, and the buffalo bull looking on half-stunned and, evidently, very much surprised at the result of his charge. Fortunately, before he could repeat the experiment, Dick galloped up and put a ball through his heart. Joe and his comrades felt a little ashamed of their exploit on this occasion, for there was no need to have killed three animals. They could not have carried with them more than a small portion of one, and they upbraided themselves several times during the operation of cutting out the tongues and other choice portions of the two victims. As for the bull, he was almost totally useless, so they left him as a gift to the wolves. Now that they had come upon the buffalo, wolves were often seen sneaking about and licking their hungry jaws, but although they approached pretty near to the camp at nights, they did not give the hunters any concern. Even Crusoe became accustomed to them at last, and ceased to notice them. These creatures are very dangerous sometimes, however, and when hard-pressed by hunger will even attack man. The day after this hunt, the travelers came upon a wounded old buffalo, which had evidently escaped from the Indians, for a couple of arrows were sticking in its side, only to fall prey to his deadly enemies, the white wolves. 
these savage brutes hang on the skirts of the herds of buffaloes to attack and devour any one that may chance from old age or from being wounded to linger behind the rest the buffalo is tough and fierce however and fights so desperately that although surrounded by fifty or a hundred wolves he keeps up the unequal combat for several days before he finally succumbs the old bull that our travelers discovered had evidently been long engaged with his ferocious adversaries for his limbs and flesh were torn in shreds in many places and blood was streaming from his sides yet he had fought so gallantly that he had tossed and stamped to death dozens of the enemy there could not have been fewer than fifty wolves round him and they had just concluded another of many futile attacks when the hunters came up for they were ranged in a circle round their huge adversary some lying down some sitting on their haunches to rest and others sneaking about lolling out their red tongues and licking their chops as if impatient to renew the combat the poor buffalo was nearly spent, and it was clear that a few hours more would see him torn to shreds and his bones picked clean. Ugh, de brutes, ejaculated Henry. They don't seem to mind us a bit, remarked Dick, as they rode up to within pistol shot. It'll be merciful to give the old fellow a shot, said Joe. Them varmints are sure to finish him at last. Joe raised his rifle as he spoke and fired. The old bull gave his last groan and fell, while the wolves, alarmed by the shot, fled in all directions. But they did not run far. They knew well at, that some portion, at least, of the carcass would fall to their share, so they sat down at various distances all around to wait as patiently as they might for the hunters to retire. Dick left the scene with a feeling of regret that the villainous wolves should have their feast so much sooner than they expected. Yet, after all, why should we call these wolves villainous? They did nothing wrong, nothing contrary to the laws of their peculiar nature. Nay, if we come to reason upon it, they rank higher in this matter than man. For while the wolf does no violence to the laws of its instincts, man often deliberately silences the voice of conscience and violates the laws of his own nature. But we will not insist on the term, good reader, if you object strongly to it, we are willing to admit that wolves are not villainous, but assuredly they are unlovable. In the course of the afternoon, the three horsemen reached a small creek, the banks of which were lined with a few stunted shrubs and trees. Having eaten nothing since the night before, they dismounted here to feed, as Joe expressed it. Curious thing, remarked Joe as he struck a light by means of flint, steel, and tinderbox. Curious thing that we're made to need such a lot of grub. If we could only get on like the serpents, now, what can breakfast on a rabbit? Then wait a month or two for dinner. Ain't it, Curvis? Dick admitted that it was, and stooped to blow the fire into a blaze. Here Henry uttered a cry of consternation, and stood speechless with his mouth open. What? What's the matter? What is it? cried Dick and Joe, seizing their rifles instinctively. De grub him be forgot. There was a look of blank horror, and then a burst of laughter from Dick Varley. Well, well, cried he. We've got lots of tea and sugar and some flour. We can get on with that till we shoot another buffalo, or aha. Dick observed a wild turkey stalking among the willows as he spoke. 
It was fully a hundred yards off, and only its head was seen above the leaves. This was a matter of little moment, however, for by aiming a little lower he knew that he must hit the body. But Dick had driven the nail too often to aim at its body. He aimed at the bird's eye and cut its head off. Fetch it, Crusoe! In three minutes it was at Dick's feet, and it is not too much to say that in five minutes more it was in the pot. As this unexpected supply made up for the loss of the meat which Henry had forgotten at their last halting place, their equanimity was restored, and while the meal was in preparation, Dick shouldered his rifle and went into the bush to try for another turkey. He did not get one, however, but he shot a couple of prairie hens, which are excellent eating. Moreover, he found a large quantity of wild grapes and plums. These were unfortunately not nearly ripe, but Dick resolved to try his hand at a new dish, so he stuffed the breast of his coat full of them. After the pot was emptied, Dick washed it out and put a little clean water in it. Then he poured some flour in and stirred it well. While this was heating, he squeezed the sour grapes and the plums into what Joe called a mush and mixed it with a spoonful of sugar and emptied it into the pot. He also skimmed a quantity of the fat from the remains of the turkey soup and added that to the mess which he stirred with earnest diligence till it boiled down into a sort of thick porridge. Mm, do you think it'll be good? asked Joe gravely. I've me doubts of it. We'll see. Hold the tin dish, Henry. Take care of de fingers. Ha! It looks magnificent. Superb. The first spoonful produced an expression on Henry's face that needed not to be interpreted. It was as sour as vinegar. <laughs> You'll have to eat it yourself, Dick lad, cried Joe, throwing down his spoon and spitting out the unsavory mess. Nonsense, cried Dick, bolting two or three mouthfuls and trying to look as if he liked it. Try again. It's not so bad as you think. Oh, cried Henry after the second mouthful. "'Tis vinegar. All the sugar in de pack would not make more sweeter one bite of it." Dick was obliged to confess the dish a failure, so it was thrown out after having been offered to Crusoe, who gave it one sniff and turned away in silence. Then they mounted and resumed their journey. At this place, mosquitoes and horseflies troubled our hunters and their steeds a good deal. The latter, especially, were very annoying to the poor horses. They bit them so much that the blood at last came trickling down their sides. They were troubled, also, once or twice, by cockafers and locusts, which annoyed them, not indeed by biting, but by flying blindly against their faces, and often narrowly missed hitting them in the eyes. Once particularly, they were so bad that Henry in his wrath opened his lips to pronounce a malediction on the whole race when a cockafer flew straight into his mouth and, to use his own forcible expression, nearly knocked him off the hoss. But these were minor evils and scarcely cost the hunters a thought. End of chapter 11